The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me in your Bible or app to Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be in verse 21 tonight. Uh, Philippians is right after Ephesians, and it's right before Colossians, and um, that's going to be found roughly the back third of your Bible. Um, I've, I've begun to dis- make that description or kind of give those uh, instructions recently, and some of you might be tempted to take offense at the guidance I just gave in locating the scriptures. Um, please know that I understand that we have among us many of you that are so well acquainted with the scriptures, you could probably find those verses almost with your eyes closed. Uh, However, we should expect that there will also be some among us who are just learning how to navigate the scriptures, and and that's for at least two reasons. One, uh, we should wholeheartedly expect and pray that there would be people here who have been led by the Spirit of God to this gathering, uh, and they may be exploring and seeking the truth about Jesus, and maybe they've not even yet turned from sin to trust in him. We should also fully expect Uh, There are to be people who have only recently become a part of the family of God through faith in Christ. Um, And and these are both exciting and reasonable expectations. Um, And and they're reasonable because we have a lot of um, clear stories of God's Spirit clearly leading folks to get here in this way. Just really weird connections and, you know, almost an inexplicable way we've had people end up coming here. Uh, and, And we know the Spirit of God orchestrates those things. And so we really uh, believe God for that, and we hope for it. The second reason we should expect to have people here who are either not yet believers in Jesus or recently became believers in Jesus is because of the mission that our master has given to us and to all faithful churches. Uh, If we are indeed loving God, loving people, and making disciples, uh, then it should be quite common for us to have those who are seeking truth and who have only recently discovered the truth in our gatherings. Uh, And this is why one reason why I would ask you to join us in prayer consistently and fervently that uh, the anointing of God would help and empower me and all those who teach the Bible here, because as I'm sure you can understand, it's an impossible task to preach the Bible in such a way that the seeker, the new believer, and the mature Christian are helped, encouraged, and nourished by it without the anointing and the help of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to preach that way without God's help. However, with God's help, uh, it's not only possible, it is one more witness to the reality of the power of our perfect Father and His great love for us. So I'm thankful for that. Um, Not only should we expect people in all different stages of their journey with Jesus to be here, we want every person to know they are both welcome and wanted. So, if you are not yet a believer, or you are new to the family of God, please know, please hear this from us. We want you here, and we're glad you're here. And so that's why I'm going to continue to help people out finding the scriptures, and we're not going to assume everybody, uh, you know, is a national champion at at sword drills. That's what they called it in children's church when I was a kid. Flip open the Bible, who can find the scripture the fastest? Uh, Maybe you are the national champion, that's awesome, but we, we hope there's people here that are still working out and figuring out how to find those scriptures in their Bible because that means we're doing what God called us to do. Amen? It's a good spot to say amen if you're going to say one today. All right? Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own and you want one, 
We have them available for free. Uh, just ask an usher or anybody back in the lounge after service, and they'll be happy to get you one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app with you, the verses will be up uh, on the screens behind me, and so you're welcome to follow along there, uh, or you can just listen as we read the Word of God together. Uh, we are continuing tonight in our series. It's called Joy, A Journey Through Philippians. Uh, we're going verse by verse through this powerful book of the Bible, which was written as a pastoral letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi while uh, he was in a Roman prison for preaching the good news of the gospel. Last week we studied uh, verses 12 through 20, and we saw the beauty of what it looks like for uh, God's glory and the furthering of the gospel to be the highest priority in this life. This week we're going to learn in more detail what a life consumed and captivated by King Jesus and his gospel really looks like. Okay? You ready to read some verses? We're going to read verses 21 through 30. We're in Philippians chapter 1. Let's go for it. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Quick pause. Had a conversation last week that made me realize not everyone knows what translation I'm preaching out of. I use the New American Standard Bible, so if you're using an app, NASB, that's where we're at. Verse 27, ready? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Praise God for his word. Uh, now we're going to go back through these verses and see uh, what it is God wants to teach us from them. Before, though, uh, we do that, I, I want to address what I see as a troubling trend. And uh, I was reminded of this during a conversation with a brother here this week. Uh, not here physically, just it's a part of uh, Love City. And I think we just need to talk about it for a minute. Uh, some of you may have even felt this way to some degree, uh, especially when we preach through a book of the Bible like we are in this series. Um, I realize it can seem a bit repetitious to read these verses in their entirety and then read them again, sometimes multiple times, uh, as we mine them for the truth and the treasure that they contain. Um, and, and there have been some well-known and high-profile church leaders recently who have said things like, uh, we need to focus less on the Bible and just preach about Jesus more. While I agree that there is a possibility to overemphasize obscure or pet doctrines, this less Bible, more Jesus sentiment is so illogical, it would be laughable if it weren't so dangerous. Friends, the book of John chapter 1 tells us this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Track down a little bit farther to verse 14, it says that that very Word became flesh and dwelt among us, okay? In, in a way that is somewhat mysterious and beyond our ability to fully grasp, the eternal Son of God is the very word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the word of God is infused with the hope and eternal power of Jesus Christ. You cannot preach rightly about the Son of God without preaching the word of God. And you cannot rightly preach the word of God without preaching 
the Son of God. Friends, you as the body of Christ must hold those who presume to teach and lead in the name of Jesus to this standard. And that includes me or any person who teaches the Bible here. Any preacher who is teaching about Jesus without being grounded in the Word of God is in error. And any preacher who is preaching the Word of God without a high focus on the exaltation of Christ and pointing to his gospel is in error. Did you catch that? It's important. You're, you're the centuries of this. The, the body of Christ is supposed to hold those who teach the Bible accountable to this standard. This is a clear standard given to us in Scripture. So please pray that God will give you the discernment to see these things. Uh, and I promise you that the leaders here at Love City will be praying the same. That you have the discernment, that we have the discernment. I don't want you guys wasting time listening to anybody that thinks they can preach about Jesus without a Bible in their hands or thinks that they can preach out of this Bible and not talk about Jesus. They're not doing nothing, man. There's nothing going on there. So, in, in light of that, let's feast upon the Word of God as those who are overcome with pangs of hunger, and let's drink the Word of God as those who are parched with thirst. For it is in God's holy Word alone that we find truth and life and hope and joy. Amen? All right. Back up to the top where we started. We're in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You guys, can't, you guys come ready to do some work tonight? All right, here we go. That, that wasn't very convincing, but it doesn't matter. I've got you here. I've got a mic. You don't. So here we go. It's going to be fun. <laughs> you better buckle up. Uh, it's rare for me to read to you a significant portion directly from a commentary. I don't do that a lot, but I believe Matthew Henry's words regarding this verse warrant an exception. So let me just read this to you. Please listen. It is the undoubted character of every good Christian that to him to live is Christ. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life, the grace of Christ, the principle of our life, and the word of Christ, the rule of it. The Christian life is derived from Christ and directed to him. He is the principle, rule, and end of it. All those to whom to live is Christ, to them to die will be gain. It is great gain, a present gain, everlasting gain. Death is a great loss to a carnal worldly man, for he loses all his comforts and all his hopes. But to a good Christian it is gain, for it is the end of all his weaknesses and misery and the perfection of his comforts and accomplishment of his hopes. It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of the chief good. Hmm. Thank you, Matthew Henry. We see in this one verse a beautiful summary of the freedom that is found in Jesus. Because of the unmatched power of his life, death, and resurrection, we can by his grace live for him alone. If we are not careful and we define freedom incorrectly, we can tragically miss the opportunity to taste its sweetness. Freedom, here's a definition, freedom is not the ability to do what you want to do. That is going to ring a bit weird for some of us, but freedom is not the ability to do what you want to do, it is the ability to do what you were made to do. Distinct and important difference. We see this explained or bore out to some degree in Romans 6, starting in verse 20. I'm just going to read this to you. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
In order to truly understand freedom, we must be humble enough to admit that sometimes what we desire is not really for our good. Do you see that? It takes humility to admit that sometimes what I think might not be right. Sometimes what I think is best may not, in fact, be best. That takes humility, and it takes uh, the Spirit of God to help us even to understand that, because most people in a rugged, individualistic, Western mindset feel like freedom means I get to do what I want, nobody can tell me anything, and furthermore, who, who better than me knows what is good for me? Well, m- maybe the eternal one that existed before everything and created us, I don't know, possibility? Probably. Yes, definitely, right? Okay. I didn't mean to have an attitude with my hand motions there. It's just, you know, yeah, yeah, God knows better than we do, okay? So there we go. Um, Part of the reason why sometimes what we desire is not really for our best, we we suffer from the effects of sin, and we have to constantly push back um, the tendency for conformity to the ways and thinking of the world and be transformed by the renewing of our minds to the truth of God by the power of God. This is a constant process uh, where the Spirit of God is at work in us. And if we get lazy about it or we back away from it, it doesn't take long to begin to conform then uh, to the foolishness of the world and uh, all of its deceptions. So uh, why, why so much about freedom? That's, the word freedom's not in here, what, so why are we drilling down on this? For the rest of the verses today, to have any value for us, we have to first assess our deepest desire. Do we want more than anything else to be able to join Paul in the declaration that for me, to live is Christ? See, because what he's saying is if he is still breathing and his heart is still beating, his greatest desire is to serve his king faithfully. Now, I want us to not so easily let ourselves off of the hook of this assessment and this question. I said greatest desire is our greatest desire to serve the king who made us and saved us. And if it's not, then to the degree it's not, we are still in bondage. And we will be unable then to un- understand why the rest of what is said here is, is fruitful and helpful. So the question is, do you want this to be true of you, friends? Is your deepest and is this to, to serve King Jesus above all else, is this your deepest and most vibrant desire? Are there other kings like wealth, pleasure, fame, or comfort whom you desire more to please? We know the prophet Jeremiah told us our hearts can and will deceive us. So we must first ask the Holy Spirit to help us assess, and then if need be correct, the order of desires and priorities in our life. If our deepest and most vibrant desire is to serve and worship the God who made us and saves us, then the rest of these verses that illuminate what it means to live for Christ will have their proper effect. But if we don't have that first, it won't make any sense. If our deepest and most vibrant desire is anything else, these seeds of truth will find no place to take root in our hearts and thus produce no lasting fruit. And so it is very important that we assess ourselves before even we come to the scriptures and again check. And that's what I'm saying. I I know I know it's possible that maybe at some point your greatest desire was 
to serve God, that you could say with absolute integrity, to live for me is Christ. But what we learn all throughout the scriptures is there's this process of sanctification, and there's this constant counter-message from Satan and the rest of the world that would try to draw our attention to the right and to the left, deceptions that would get us off track, uh, false idols that we produce up out of our own hearts and also are pressed upon us by uh, Satan and his cohorts. And so the reality is we always, as we come to the scriptures, and we're about to hit some profound things here that will really help us to understand what it means when Paul says, to live is Christ. And so we need to, in order to not waste these beautiful instructions, we need to first figure out, do we even, do we even care about what's coming next, right? Do I want that? Do I want to be able to say with the utmost integrity to live as Christ? For me, if my heart is pumping and there's air going in and out of my lungs, that I am serving Christ always and to the fullest uh, of the ability that, that he's given me by his grace. Okay, so there's, there's that. If, if we don't do that, if we don't assess that way, the seeds of truth we're about to read will find no place to take root. Now, the next thing he says, he says to live is Christ. The next thing he says, to die is gain. And that might seem fatalistic or dark, uh, but this is really the furthest from the truth. For Paul to talk this way was not as a result of giving up hope. It is a joyous declaration instead of his greatest hope. He's not saying to die is gain because he's struggling uh, to have hope. He is simply declaring what his greatest hope is placed in. For many of us, it would seem the apostle is here feeling torn between two bad options. To live for Christ, continuing to experience hardships like the one he's currently in. Remember, how did he write this letter? From a jail cell, right? So we, we understand that and we say, okay, so he's, he's saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. So is he is he looking at the live option as, that's a bummer because look at what I'm going through. So we would probably tend to see it that way. So he can either do that or he can die. See, we think that that's two bad options. He sees these options as the exact opposite. He is torn between two great potential paths. Let's read verses 23 through 25 to, to kind of begin to form this out and, and prove what we're saying. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, you see this statement that to die is gain. It's not because Paul is so overcome by his struggles that he wants to give up. He is not suicidal. He just yearns to be with Jesus. And it is true that the pain and fear of death has been completely destroyed for the Christian. Let me read this to you. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. It says this. This is a quote uh, reaching back to the Old Testament. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is in sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the pain and sorrow for the Christian that comes with death. Now, that doesn't mean that those that when a Christian dies, it doesn't mean that those around them are not able to, to mourn that loss and feel the feelings associated with that. However, our mourning, we need to have it in a proper context and understand that. If there is sadness, it's because we will miss them temporarily, 
it's not because they're having a bad time. <laughs> We're not sad for them. Uh, they're, ha- they're, they're having a great time. Uh, and that's, that's what Paul recognizes here, and that's why he yearns to some degree. Uh, it says to depart. He uses that language. So um, that does not mean, even though all the sting and pain of death has been removed for us, the fear of death has been removed for us as Christians, or should be, uh, it does not mean we are immune to the potential of desiring death for the wrong reasons. As a matter of fact, Paul, same guy, even expressed in 2 Corinthians 1 that there was a time when because of extreme hardship and struggle, he, quote, despaired even of life. He got to the point where he was in that situation, so overwhelmed, so overcome, struggling so deeply, physically burdened, uh, persecuted, shipwrecked, beaten, struggling so badly that he despaired even of life. Also, Elijah in 1 Kings 19 asked God to kill him, crawled up under a juniper tree and said, God, I'm useless, kill me, I'm done. Both of these examples tell us that the desire, that to desire death because of difficulty does not mean someone is faithless. They may just be in a season of struggle and be overwhelmed. I want to qualify that. Why can I say, I can tell you confidently that those two examples, if that was the only ones we had, there's other ones we could point out, but if we just had those two, how can I tell you confidently, if somebody's desiring death for the wrong reasons, or even is to the point of being suicidal, how can I guarantee you that that doesn't necessarily mean that they are faithless? Well, we're dealing with two guys here. Elijah, first of all, that went at right, right before he crawled up underneath the juniper tree and asked God to kill him, you remember what he was doing? He was on the top of Mount Carmel battling the prophets of Baal, telling them, hey, bring more jars of water and pour it on this wood right here because I'm about to call down fire from heaven. It doesn't matter how much water you put on it. Watch this. And then what happened? Boom, fireball from heaven. All the prophets of Baal get slain. The slobber knocked out of their mouth. He has one of the most incredible victories of faith recorded in all of the Old Testament. Okay? Not a faithless guy. Furthermore, after he goes through this struggle of depression, anxiety, and, and, and a desire to die, it's not very long after uh, God calls him to community, God calls him to mission, he's got some more things for him to do. He says, no, you cannot die yet, uh, but you, know, uh, you get to come home soon, but I need you to do a few more things. He does what he's supposed to do, and God sends a chariot of fire for this brother to pick him up and take him to heaven. Okay, so I don't know what all the options are to put like a smiley face stamp of approval from God's perspective. But I just have to imagine fire chariot ride to heaven qualifies. Right? Not a faithless guy. Okay? Paul, not a faithless guy. Right? A guy that gave his life uh, to write 60 to 70% of the New Testament, uh, planted churches, really was responsible by God's grace for much of the kicking off of uh, the New Testament church. And so... A guy full of faith, but still had a time of struggle, still had a time of darkness, okay? And we need to understand that that can be the case and not jump to conclusions. So um, we who have love, we who have have, uh, been loved by Jesus and who love him should feel the tension of desiring to depart. That tension should be there for us, right? Um, Because it, it is, if we think right, much better. But that desire should be motivated by being with Christ, not escaping the difficulties of life, right? We say it all the time, motive matters. So that that tension and that feeling that Paul is is describing right here, this this desire to depart, he he tells us plainly what motivates that desire. Um, 
I'm, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart, what? And be with Christ. It's not in this moment, uh, I'm tired, I'm wore out, I'm broke down, I'm busted, everything's dark, there's no hope. This tension that Paul's describing here is simply, I, I want to live because I know there's a mission for me to do. I love people here. I know uh, every day I'm alive, if, if to live is Christ, that I'm going to be accomplishing things for his kingdom. However, this part of my heart, because I just love Jesus so much, like I just can't wait to get there, to be with him. That is proper, and that should, to some degree, exist in us who really believe what we say we believe about eternity. Now, even though this is true, and a desire, a desire for death can be holy, but we've also said that there can be unholy desires for death, even though that's true, we need to be clear. If you have desired death as escape, or even if you have contemplated suicide, you are not going to be judged harshly for that here. No one here will ever assume that if you just had more faith, you would not struggle in this way. Okay? Remember Elijah and Paul? Both despaired for life. Begged God to take them out because they were wore out. They had a season of difficulty, but it didn't, it didn't mean these guys had no faith, no connection, no relationship with God. Absolutely, it doesn't mean that. Sometimes there is sin or a lack of faith involved in these types of battles, but we are never going to jump to that conclusion. There are many factors, including physical elements as well as spiritual attacks from the enemy, that can be a part of this picture. So please hear me. No matter what the cause of suicidal thoughts or an inordinate desire for death, you will be met with love and care and compassion here. So many people struggle in silence with these things because of stupid stigmas that ought not exist and wouldn't exist if we knew what the Bible says about it. That's a good spot for you to say amen. You with me? Those stigmas should not exist. They only exist because people don't know what the Bible says about it. If they did, they wouldn't treat people lesser than because they're struggling a certain way that might look different than their struggle. You feeling me on this? This is instructive for us. I, I am talking to those that may have struggled this way, but I'm also talking to you that don't. Okay? There's instruction here for everybody, and I need you to hear me, because this is real important. This is a safe place to express these types of struggles. Here at Love City, this is a safe place. If you open up to someone and they don't know how to help you, they will help you find someone who can. Not everyone is equipped with the tools and discernment necessary to walk with folks through this kind of struggle, but every single person who is a part of Love City better know, and if they don't, they do now, that we will never treat you as lesser because of this. We love you, and we want to help. Three times more people die of suicide in Ohio each year than homicide, and many never say a word because they fear ridicule or rejection. That's not going to happen here, Okay? If you agree with that and you pledge to be a part of the solution, that say amen real loud so I can hear you. Amen. Okay, now if you're somebody that has been hiding in the shadows or wearing masks or unable to, to feel like you can come out because you feared ridicule or rejection, that's about as loud of an amen as I get around here. So at least 99% of the people in this room agree we're not going to treat you lesser than, we're not going to deal with you as if somehow if you just had more faith you could get over this. We're not just going to pat you on the head and act like this is, and give you a pat answer. We're going to love you, we're going to get in there with you, we're going to show you compassion, and we're going to point you to Jesus. 
And we're going to do whatever it takes to help because we love you. Okay? Amen. Part of what it means to live for Christ, to live for Christ, is unpacked uh, in these verses that we just read. Um, one thing we see is that if we live for Christ, we will live for the good of others. Let me show you this. Uh, he said, as I'm, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. For who? For him, right? He knows if I can get with Jesus, man, all of my struggles, all of this stuff, I, I'll finally be with the lover of my soul, the, the Savior who loves me, uh, my King who made me, finally what I was made for, the, the fullness of that will happen, and I'll be with him. So he desires that, that departing. So it's very much better for him, yet... To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Sometimes we struggle even in small decisions of life to consider how it is it affects other people and or integrate or run what we do or how we do it through the grid of how is this going to affect other people. This brother is thinking about this, this existential, like, super big inner turmoil and, and tension that he has about, I want to go to be with Jesus. But you know what? I can't just think about what I want. I can't just think about what would be best for me because I love you people. And because I know that God still has work for me to do among you. And I know that if I'm here, it's going to be a blessing to you and it's going to increase your joy. And so, in this, in this super big, maybe biggest of all questions, you see this idea that to live is Christ, to live for Christ, to be consumed with the beauty of the gospel, to let Jesus be uh, totally and, and completely king and sovereign Lord over you and, and to follow his example, what that's going to lead to, part of what's going to happen in the heart of a human that has been affected in that way is that they are going in every decision of life to consider how it affects others. To live as Christ, to live for Christ, is to live for the good of others. And so we see that here. Uh, in verse 25, we see Paul, though, though he is not totally sure, he has a sense that he will have more time to live for God. You see that? Uh, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all uh, for your progress and joy in the faith. And so... Um, we know from just above, actually, what we talked about last week in verse 20, he says, you know, uh, Christ will be exalted whether I live or whether I die. And so you can tell to some degree, he, he's not, this, this verse 25, he's not making a definitive statement as if he has some prophetic word from God about what's going to happen, but he does have a sense uh, of which way this thing's going to go. And we see that revealed in, in uh, verse 25. And so uh, just for the record, his sense about it was correct. He did not die during this imprisonment. He did not get the death penalty during this imprisonment. Uh, and he was actually able to visit the Philippians again. It wasn't until later, two or three years roughly, that he's imprisoned again and then martyred for the faith. Uh, and so uh, that, that there uh, just, just shows us to some degree the, the level to which Paul was connected to God's spirit and able to kind of have some foresight about what was going on. So... Um, Part of what it means to live for Christ is, is unpacked in these verses, uh, and, and so we're going to keep going through there and just see some more what that means. So um, look at the amazing focal point for Paul as he processes his feelings. Let's look at this statement right here. This is, this is beautiful and convicting uh, and amazing all at once. He says this, for your progress and joy 
in the faith. So he says, he, so he says you know, I want to depart to be with Christ. That is better for me. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, because it's better for you, um, I'm convinced that I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is beautiful. I tried to think of an example, and I hope this is helpful. So imagine someone that you love very much. It can be, um, it can be a child, a parent, a spouse. Imagine someone that you love very, very much. Maybe the person you love the most in the world. And imagine that you're with them and you're hiking with them in the wilderness. And as you're doing this, you guys lose your bearings, your compass falls in the river, whatever happens, and uh, you get lost. Okay, and so you're, you're, you're lost, you're wandering through the wilderness, trying to find your way out. As you're doing this, the person you're with, that person you love very much, they, they misstep uh, and they injure their leg badly. And so now they're unable to walk. Okay, the only way now that they're going to survive is if you are able to bring them food and water. Okay, they are not able to move, they're not able to walk, they are stuck, they are now dependent upon you to bring them food and water. Okay, you've got them backed up to a tree or whatever it is. They're not eating, they're not drinking unless you bring it to them. And as days turn into weeks, the search party hasn't found you, you guys haven't found your way out, you're not sure what to do, you're getting hungrier, you're getting more and more exhausted, uh, you're beginning to lose hope from all this time being out in the wilderness. Here's my question to you. That's the scenario, that's the, that's the problem, that's where we find ourselves my question to you is, how would the fact that this person you love deeply is depending on you for survival, how would that affect your will to live? Change the situation and put yourself out there by yourself, right? Weeks and weeks, you're, you're starving, you're hungry, you're exhausted, uh, you might be sick from exposure and, and drinking water that's bad and the whole, it's just bad and it's every day and, and every day that the chopper doesn't show up or that you don't hear the search party come and uh, hope hope dwindles a little bit more and more. You're out there by yourself. You could see yourself getting to the point where you, you, you may just lay down and, and, and like Elijah under the juniper tree, say, God, could you, could you end this? This is, this is too much. I can't take it anymore. But here, what would the difference be, friend? Here's my question to you. How does this look differently in your mind and heart when the person that you love, perhaps the person you love more than anybody, is, is posted up against that tree, unable to move, and if you don't stick around and provide for them, they die too. What does it change it should change everything for us. There should be a much higher desire than to make it, to whatever it takes, go all the way to the end, expend every bit of energy I have to make sure not only I'm staying alive, but I, I want to make sure they're staying alive because I love them. And I don't want them to die there with their busted up leg in the wilderness, right? I'm going to do my best to hang in there with them. What is this weird hiking analogy about and what am I saying? Guys, this is this is what it was for Paul and the Philippian church, and this is what it is for us. And this is not just true for pastors and leaders among God's people. We have been called, friends, to be the light of the world, to reflect the light of the glory of God and the goodness of his gospel to the ends of the earth. This world is the broken hiker that can't get the truth. If we do not obey God, stay in this thing and go hard for Jesus by his grace and power. We, like Paul, have to look at our life and look at our desire to keep going, or even if, if, we, if we are plagued with thoughts of, 
whether it's, it's a, a, a right or an ordinate desire for death, we need to understand that as Christians, we have a reason to be here besides just our own existence and what it is we're doing in our own little sphere of life, right? We have a mission, and it isn't just because Paul was the pastor that planted this church. Every single Christian, because we have such beautiful teaching throughout the New Testament that tells us we all have a part to play in this thing. The family of God is the body of Christ. And so you need the fingers and you need the toes and you need the torsos and the necks. You need the whole thing working together because we've got a big mission to do. And if we don't have everybody in this thing and desiring to be in this thing, then it's not going to be as effective as it could be. And so we need to understand our call in that light. We need to know that even though uh, it would be better for each of us individually right now, if God would, if God would grant that great uh, privilege to us to, to depart and to be with him, for, yes, it would be better. And I have to tell you that the truth, friends. I, I share this tension with Paul. There are days and sometimes there are weeks where I feel this tension and this desire to depart because I know that once I get with him, that every single thing that has been made wrong because of sin will be made right. All of the temptations and the things that I struggle with, every bit of pain that riddles my body because of the effects of sin, all of the struggle will be over and I will bask in the unveiled glory of my creator and I yearn for that deeply and I want that. But I also... I have to share with Paul the same sentiment that says, there is a reason God has me here and there is people here that God has called me to love and to minister to and that's not just because I'm called to be a pastor. That same call is upon you, friend. And so we have to live in that tension. We have to land in the right spot about it. And we have to know that if we're here and our heart's pumping and our lungs are still working, we've got purpose. And there's people to love. There's people to help. There's people to share the gospel with. There's people to be a light to. There's people to bring that, you know, in, in my hiking analogy, it's, it's just food and water to stay alive, man. But there are people all around you every single day that have not yet tasted the bread of life, that have not yet tasted the water that, that means you're never thirsty again because you have actually tasted the beauty of Christ and you don't then have to yearn after all of these false idols and everything else, man. There's people that don't know yet. And so, yeah. In the analogy, we've got one person we love a whole lot, but here's the call of God to us, friends, that we are to love every person with that kind of passion. We are to think about the world around us with that same kind of compassionate love, and I realize that that's difficult, and I realize it's very, very hard for us to think about loving everybody around us, including our enemies, those that have set themselves up in opposition to us. It's very, very hard to think of loving them the same way we love that person we imagined in the analogy, but what does that do? The, the impossibility of that should drive us to the feet of Jesus because the command doesn't change. So what we need is his power to obey it. It is impossible for you to love all the people at your work, even the nasty ones, all the people in your family, even the nasty ones. It's impossible for you to think about your life on a daily basis as the fact that you're here and still struggling through whatever you're struggling through, that part of it is so that you can be to them a reflection of the goodness and the love of Christ. It's hard for you to care about that. It's impossible for you to care about that in the way that we should without the anointing of God every single day. And so every single day, man, we got to wake up and plead with God, please God, anoint me for the task of being an ambassador of love and of the truth of the gospel today to everybody, including the difficult ones. Praise God. He wouldn't ask us to do it if he wasn't prepared to equip us to follow through. Amen.
I'm thankful that's true. All right. Verse 26. Uh, it, it could have gone with the rest, but I separated it out because there, there's a little bit of awkward language here, and I just want to deal with it because uh, it can cause some confusion. It says this, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, verse 26, in many Bible translations, they have swapped out uh, the, the words proud confidence, so that your proud confidence in me. They've, uh, they've swapped that out for words like rejoice, which I, I know why. Uh, for some, for, to some degree, it's easier to understand because this is kind of weird. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. So it sounds, it sounds a little bit weird, and, and it, it kind of is because it does have a connotation in that wording of, of boasting. And so it's kind of like, well, I thought we weren't supposed to boast, and I thought if we were going to boast, it shouldn't be in people, but it should only be in Christ. And all of that is true. So there is a little bit of awkwardness there. It seems a bit counterintuitive. Um, I'm thankful that NASB did not change it, though, so that we can, we can work through it. Let's break this down. So part of, part of what's going on here, it says, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Okay, so first of all, Paul again, even if he's, I mean, all through this chapter one, this seems like an emotional chapter for him to write, man. He starts out like, I love you guys so much. Like, I'm so thankful for you. Every single time I pray for you, my heart swells with gratitude. And he goes on to say, hey, I know I'm in a real rough situation, but the gospel's going forward because of it. So, you know, no matter what happens here, man, whether I live or whether I die, Christ is going to be exalted because I'm staying in it. And then, he, and then he moves on. He says, for me to live uh, is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on through this. this. This is emotional for him. Paul is feeling in this thing. And so I, I just also want to, to some degree in this, say that we, we need sometimes those of us that tend towards the side of, you know, kind of logic on the spectrum, like we're more analytical in the way we think. Sometimes we have a tendency, I'm confessing sin right now, okay? Is that all right? Sometimes I sin in this way because People that process things emotionally or feel their way through things more than logically analyze their ways through things, um, sometimes I disregard that too quickly, and I, and I don't realize that I have a blind spot, because just because somebody throws a situation at me, it's, it's like, you know, computational algorithms start running, and I'm like, okay, let's, let's logic this out, let's analyze it, da, 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 da. okay, here's what you need to do, A, B, C, D, and E, if you do that, you'll be all right, just follow those steps. Sometimes that's not true, man. Sometimes my logic's going to fail, and sometimes you need somebody that can feel what's going on in that thing to really understand the nuance and get it. And so first of all, I want to say to you, if you're a feeler, and I've ever disregarded that the way God's built you in that way, and that you process through stuff and situations more with emotion and feelings than logic, if I've, if I've ever treated you like that wasn't um, relevant or helpful, please forgive me for that. And I'm committing to not do that. Uh, I really, I'm trying to surround myself with more people that feel more than me. It's not that I'm a robotic, lack of feeling guy, as I'm sure, you know, I've displayed in weeks past. Start talking about Jesus and the gospel and his church and all that he's doing, you know, I'll have, I'll have a tear in the corner of my eye as quick as anybody else. However, uh, I do bend way more towards, towards logic. But we see here the Apostle Paul, like analytical supreme. This guy is, is the reason you can say systematic next to theology because of the way he thinks and works through stuff. Uh, an excellent thinker, but also feeling in the midst of this. So it's okay for you to feel, all right? Don't be led by your feelings. Um, don't let that get out of balance. Um, but don't let people like me, you know, in a sinful way, make you feel like that's an illegitimate way to process or unhelpful because sometimes it's really helpful. And people like me need you. And so that's why we all need each other. 
Okay? Amen. Sometimes, sometimes you need me to tell you to stop crying. Here, let's think about this. <laughs> sometimes you need to tell me, hold on, bro, your, your logic isn't going to fix every problem. There, here's a nuance to this that you're not getting because you're acting like a robot. Okay? Is that cool? Is it cool that we need each other and we can, we can give and take like that? Good. I'm glad. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so, what, what's going on here? <clears throat> Verse 26, this is one of the reasons, one of hundreds of reasons, why... Uh, we need genuine, authentic, gospel-centered community and why that's so important. What's going on here? Why is this not weird that he says, your proud confidence in me? It seems like Paul's being a little boastful here um, or a, a little over-assumptive. First of all, he says that it'll abound in Christ Jesus. So first of all, he's, he's again, even in the midst of this very feeling-soaked uh, discussion he's having through this letter as he's pouring his heart out to his friends, the Philippians, he's still careful with this theology and he still says, even any confidence you have in me, it's still going to abound in Christ Jesus. It's going to lead to exaltation and glory for Christ Jesus. But here's the beautiful thing we see here and what he's pointing out. When we have a genuine, authentic, gospel-centered community, we can boast in one another's testimonies. You see, because he goes on to say, uh, Christ Jesus, through my coming to you again. And so he already knows that the first time he was in Philippi, he was put in jail, and uh, him and Silas start singing songs, right? And then there's an earthquake, the jail bursts open, and so there was this incredible testimony of how God faithfully showed up and rescued Paul and Silas in the midst of this thing. And so he knows the Philippians have already been boasting about that, right? When the Philippians are out doing street evangelism, and somebody's like, oh yeah, God, brr, you know, and they're starting making fun of whatever, the Philippians are going, hey, hold on, let me tell you this story, and a bunch of people heard about it and saw it. Here, there's, here's 15 people that saw this happen. These guys started singing praise songs to Jesus and the jail burst open and that hard-nosed guy that used to lead the whole the whole guard for the jail he's a Christian now yeah he follows Jesus too because he was there and saw it sup <laughs> right so what are they boasting in there they're, they're able to boast in Paul's testimony How, they couldn't do that if there wasn't enough relationship to know each other right if Paul and the Philippians had done the standard Christian thing and, and we're all doing their own things. We don't get in deep enough to actually know each other's struggles and or victories. They don't get to boast in one another's uh, struggles and then victories, right? But the beautiful thing is once you start to get to know people, you know each other's story well enough. You're walking through life with people. You see the struggle and the victory. You can then not only look into your own life to have ammunition, to have uh, arrows to, to fire back, man, when the enemy's trying to tell you, oh, God's not real, or, or somebody's trying to argue and tell you, oh, well, you know, that's all emotion and whatnot. Here, here's the problem, man. I know a bunch of your stories, right? And I tell you, I, I promise this is true. When I'm on the streets preaching Jesus to people, not only am I reaching into my own experience, my own story, my own testimony for, for valid points to try to relate to the person that I'm talking to and show them that God is indeed real and powerful, I reach into your stories all the time. So I don't know if there's a trademark infringement problem there. I'm just hoping that by grace you let me have your story, that I can tell people about Jesus and use it. Because I know a bunch of you have been through some stuff, and the only way you came out the other side is because Jesus is real and mighty and faithful and powerful. And so we should know each other's stories well enough that we can boast in this confidence and say, yes, Jesus is real. Let me tell you about four people who would have died if it wasn't for God. Here's, here's a story. Oh, okay, you've got this story of how this went. Well, here, I know this other person. I know them personally, and I know this, was, this happened because I was with them in the midst of it. Boom, 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 right? We are able to boast 
and have confidence in our faith and be able to talk about the reality of the power of God and the fact that he is involved in our lives as we are able to boast in each other's testimonies. And of course, Revelation says that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So you need to know your own. I hope I've said that. You know, I say that probably once a month. I try to say it a lot. You need to know your own testimony, man. You need to pull that thing, be able to pull that thing out like a sword and wield it. You need to remember and know the times that you've prayed and God has showed up. You need to know how it is God came and changed your heart. You need to be able to speak with passion about what God has done for you. But we also need to know each other well enough that we can pull from each other's stories so that we are better equipped to minister to and to love a greater range of people. Because my story is not going to relate to everybody. You understand that? I'm different. My, my story relates to like four people in the world because I'm real different. They call it weird, right? So I'm, I'm way out there over in left field, but, but I know a bunch of your stories. And so with my story and with your story, I'm able to boast in confidence about the goodness of God, and it leads to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I'm not boast. When I tell your story, I'm not telling about how awesome you are. I'm sorry. You're not getting credit when I tell your story. When I preach Jesus using your story, King Jesus is getting all the glory. I might say you're cool or whatever, but you're not getting the glory for the story. You know what I'm talking about? I'm pointing to Jesus the fact that he's your deliverer, and the fact that he's the one that brought you through. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Uh, it's not just when I'm preaching on the streets, man. I'm counseling people, whatever it is. I, I, I honestly, I, I have an arsenal of stories uh, uh, and, and vibrant testimonies of people that I know and love uh, that I can reach to and speak from. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, first of all, what a, what a beautifully light burden to be saddled with. Let me read these words to you again and let it sit upon you in the way that it should. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What should I do? How should I act? What does that look like? Like just, just in a broad sense, run those thought processes through this statement. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is what I'm about to say worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is the way I'm about to treat this person worthy of the gospel of Christ? Is this big life decision I'm about to make worthy of the gospel of Christ? Whoo! How many of y'all would have done a few things different if you ran some stuff through that grid? My hand's up first. Okay, the rest of you ain't thinking about it. All right, praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, this word conduct here, it, it, it has a connotation of, of living as a faithful citizen of God's kingdom. Uh, get down to the original language. There's, there's that connotation there of citizenship in God's kingdom. And... Um, we, we see here of all the things that this could mean, right, this, this, this call to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that can mean a lot of different things, and it can apply to a lot of different situations, and, and it, it should, and, and, and we need to apply it in that way. But specifically, Pastor Paul, when, when saying this, he, he had unity in, in mind. And so for him, part of the way he's talking about conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel uh, is, is that, that we would be in unity. And so the beauty of this is he does not just here give us a command to be unified, but he gives us a really precious key uh, for how to accomplish it. Um, 
The, the, the importance of unity among God's people cannot be overstated. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I can't talk about unity too much. I can't use, uh, I can't use words to describe how important it is. There, there's no way I could overstate it. I can't overdo it. it you, you can't emphasize unity among God's people enough or, or too much. It can't be overstated, which is, that's why it is one of our core values here at Love City. Uh, for us, we believe we should strive for unity in our homes, in our church family, and in the church globally. Okay, those are all big missions, again, which point us back to the need for the help of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. Most of us are struggling with the unity at home. Then you get a group of people together this big, then you got, you know, more attitudes and, and you know, you've got more mouths. And so, but then we get to the church globally, man, we, we, there, it takes the Spirit of God for us to get together and work for the gospel. Um, and, and, and we try as hard as we can, and there's, we have partners that are, that are willing to do that, and I'm really thankful for it. God's been very gracious to us in that way. In almost every book of the New Testament, not an exaggeration, whether it is Jesus' high priestly prayer, go to John 17, check that out, or his instructions to the various churches through uh, Paul's letters or, or some of the other apostles, unity among God's people is of the utmost importance. Okay, so first I want to set that table. You can't think about this too much. You can't pray about it too much. You can't care about unity among God's people too much. If we are honest, though, this is often difficult. Besides asking for God to help us by his grace, which is probably primary. I'm going to go out on a limb. It is primary. Asking God for help by his grace to do this, to be in unity with one another, that's going to be primary and, and the best hope we have. But we also see here another powerful way that we can push back against division, and be in unity for God's glory, okay? So this, this is a difficult thing. It's hard to do. Satan works overtime all the time against it. He's always trying to drive wedges between God's people for various reasons, oftentimes very silly reasons. Uh, that's both, that, that's all, that happens all three, in the home, in, in you know, a local church family context like this here. He's trying to drive wedges. He's trying to make offenses happen. He's trying to get bitterness in there because he knows how much that can gum up the works and it can slow the roll uh, of furthering gospel progress. But he's definitely also trying to drive wedges in the church globally, get us throwing rocks at each other over stuff that I don't think really matters a lot of times. Uh, and so just know our enemy understands how important unity is, so we, we need to get it. Uh, but here's, here's, here's the key that he gives us, okay? I'm going to read this statement to you. With one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so he doesn't just say to us, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, you know, whether, whether I'm just hearing about you or whether I come, that you're going to be, here's what I'm expecting. For you to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there's the command. He wants us to be in one mind and one spirit. But, but, and it almost just seems like he's just describing how, but really what he's given us here is a really, really crucial key to how we do this. Striving that we be in one mind of un- and we're in unity, striving for the faith of the gospel. You see, part of the, one of the biggest problems in getting people unified is to come to a singular purpose. Right, Because if you put a bunch of people in a room who all have different agendas and are actually trying to accomplish something different, you are bound to have those different agendas cross each other in a way that causes tension and causes division. But here's the beauty. If every single person that has been claimed by Christ, who has been rescued by the beautiful gospel, if every single one of us 
made our number one striving to be pushing for the faith of the gospel, to be pushing forward the progress of the gospel, to be giving the good news about Jesus to as many people as possible, then what I think about this pet doctrine or what you did over here or whatever else, if we understood the magnitude of the mission, if our eyes and our hearts were set upon the beauty and power of the gospel, if we were striving first and foremost in all that we do, Every single thing we do, if we run it through the grid of how does this apply to us striving for the faith of the gospel, if we do that, motivations will line up, our our human motivations will line up with the motivations of God, and then heaven help whoever gets in the way. If, If we accomplish that, that's why every single book of the New Testament is saying, be in unity. Above all else, keep in unity. As much as it has to do with you, be at peace with as many people as possible. Fight for unity. Don't let bitterness in. Don't let unforgiveness in. Don't do it because if we get that stuff out of the way, man, we will be like a locomotive. A gospel train, man. Chew, chew. God help you if you get in front of that thing, man. Don't be an enemy of that. You get bowled over. We love you, but we just ran you over. See ya. We're moving because we're together, man we got one purpose, mind, heart, all of it. We're focused, striving for the faith of the gospel. That's a key to how this happens, man. We can't have a bunch of different agendas. We can't, we can't be trying to promote anybody other than Jesus. We can't be trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to make his glory known and his fame throughout the earth. Reflect his goodness. Got to be gospel people. That breeds unity in a beautiful way. Verse 28, in no way... So all of that, and then, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. This harmonizes with the totality of what the rest of the scriptures say, really. The most prevalent command we are given from God is that we fear not. Oftentimes connected with one of two promises. Fear not either, for I am God, or fear not because I am with you. Both things connected to the character, power, strength, and faithfulness of God. Well, well, I'm afraid. Okay. But if you think about the fact that, so he says, I, fear not for I am God. So first of all, okay, so whatever it is you're, you're struggling with fear about. First of all, let's stack that up to what the Bible says about God. Sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, the might of his hand cannot be measured, holds all of creation within the palm of his hands, timeless, All-powerful God, okay? So just the fact that he is who he is means that if I'm on his team, fear should diminish. But then not only is he who he said he is, also he's promised to be with us. Jesus said, go on all the earth and make disciples, man, and I'll be with you even till the end of the age. And so because God has set things up the way he has, because of what's happened through Christ and his death and resurrection, we now are indwelt by the power of the Spirit. We have literally the power of God with us. Uh, And Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we can ask or think, that sat God by that same power, he's at work within you. Whoo! Come on now. It's a confidence builder, but the confidence isn't in me. It's in the God who's promised to be with me. So we need not fear. Fear is a favorite weapon of demagogues and demons, but the gospel renders it completely impotent. All of fear's teeth get busted out by the truth about Jesus. 
if we apply the truth of the gospel to whatever it is that is seizing us, causing us anxiety and fear, if we can do that, it will lose every time. That's, that's part of what freedom looks like, friends. You're made to be free. Verses 29 and 30. Uh, it says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here uh, to be in me. That's, 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 a, that's a praise banner verse, isn't it? Woo! Get the tambourines out. All right, verses 29 through 30 here, this, this echoes uh, Romans 5, and it is, guys, it is such a prevalent principle throughout the scriptures that its truth and power cannot be denied. So if, if, if there's anybody that's going to tell you that once you um, turn from sin and trust in Jesus, uh, once you become a Christian, um, once, once you, the, the lordship of your life has been surrendered to Christ, that now, now only ever will good things happen to you, and if a bad thing happens, it's because either you sinned or it's... Or, or it's the devil, or that, that never, ever, ever uh, is God going to allow something trying or difficult to come your way. They are preaching a false gospel, and you should walk away from them. Do not listen to that garbage because of this verse and also because of Romans 5. In, in Romans 5, uh, it's, it starts in verse 1, just, just, just getting happy about Jesus. And, and he comes on down a little bit and he says, here's, here's the deal. Not only do we rejoice in everything I just talked about, not only do you rejoice in your salvation, come with me, friends, this is fun, but also rejoice in your tribulation because your tribulation gives way to perseverance. Perseverance develops character. And once that whole process happens, at the end of it, you have hope. And it's a hope that is not going to be disappointed because the love of God has been poured out in us. Okay, this, this, this echoes so loudly throughout the New Testament, it cannot and will not be denied. This beautiful truth. Did you hear what I said? Not only do we rejoice in our salvation, okay, so we should rejoice in our salvation. Hopefully we're stoked on that, right? I was dead in sin, I was enslaved to sin, and now I'm free and alive in Christ. Woo! That, that's, that's a rejoice. That's, a, that, that's an easy praise banner verse, but then it gets a little bit more, then it gets a little bit more difficult. Then it gets into this, this, this kind of weird place that seems a little bit different than everything else we hear everywhere else. Then he says, not only rejoice in that, but rejoice in your tribulation. Are you tracking with me? That means I'm in the midst of something difficult. Paul is telling me here and there, and everybody else is agreeing, including King Jesus himself, that in the midst of that, by the grace and power of God, that somehow... In the same way I lift my hands in praise when I think about the fact that I was dead and now I'm alive, that when trouble comes, when difficulty comes, when I'm hitting that spot in the road where there's trouble and I don't know what to do and I'm confused and anxiety's trying to grab me and choke me out, in the midst of that, because of God and because of the promise that he will take us through a process of perseverance by his spirit that develops character in us, and after we walk through that, we will have a hope that will not disappoint. I can rejoice not only when I get get all the way to the other end and I'm at the hope part. Yay! But I can rejoice all the way at the beginning when the trouble first starts because he who promised is faithful. I know that's hard. I know I keep saying this. I'm just going to keep saying it. Rejoicing in the midst of tribulation is antithetical to every single fiber of your being and what is natural. I understand that. What is natural when trouble comes? Complain. This is a bummer feel real bad about it, think about it a lot, and repeat, right? But God is calling us to this beautiful, 
gospel screaming reality that if we can do this, man, if people in our life watch us when difficulty comes, and I'm not saying physically you have to have a praise dance in the middle of a difficulty, but I'm talking about the way you talk about it, the way you deal with it, the posture with which you approach it, how it is your how it is you're dealing with that by the grace of God, man. If in the midst of trouble, right, is the first sign of its coming, if you can say, God, I thank you right now for this, opportun- this opportunity to persevere because I know that I'm going to do this by your grace. I'm going to persevere through it. I'm going to make it. And when I get done with that, I'm going to have greater character. I'm going to be more sharpened implement in your hand. And on the other side of that, after I go through that whole process, I'm going to have a hope that builds on my ability to rejoice the next time trouble comes. Because don't you see it, friends? Don't you see the beauty of this? If you'll do that, if you'll trust God when the trouble comes and you persevere by his grace, character is built, and then you have that hope. Here comes the next trouble, but guess what? I just got done whooping that one by God's grace, so bring it on. And then you get to the point where you got enough hope, you can start lending it to others. Hey, maybe you haven't been through this process before. Maybe you haven't seen what God says about this, but you know what? I know you're in the midst of trouble, but let me, let me, let me tell you some stories, man. Let me tell you some stories about what I've been through, and actually I got some friends too that have been through some other stuff. Let me tell you about their story. Let's boast in confidence in God that Christ would be exalted. I hope you're stoked on that because there's not much better material, man, to be stoked about than than what we just went through. So I really hope you're grabbing it and getting it. And if you're not, I'm praying by God's grace it hits you sometime tonight and you can't sleep because you're so stoked on it. Woo! If you're up all night praising God in the midst of your tribulation, man, God will give you the energy for the next day. I'm I'm not trying to pray against your sleep and all. I know some of you like, brother, no, okay? (laughs) We got enough problems there. Get back up off my sleep. Amen. Some trials, here's the truth. Some trials are self-inflicted. You know what I mean when I say that? Sometimes we have trouble because we did something dumb. Or we sinned or we disobeyed God. Sometimes that's the way trials come. Some, according to this, according to these scriptures right here, some trials are granted to us for our growth and God's glory. What about that language? Some trials are granted to us. What do you grant to people? Man, gifts, good things. This is is the way God thinks about it. He is granting you that because it's going to give you an opportunity for something that's really good for you, which is an opportunity to persevere, have character built, and have greater hope. This changes the whole paradigm, man, of struggle. It doesn't mean we're gluttons for punishment, but it definitely means we don't freak out when trouble comes. Some trials are self-inflicted, some are granted to us for our growth and God's glory, but in either case, God will work in the midst of them for the good of those who love him. I know you know it, but let me read you this. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is real big. This is real big, and you need to hear it, okay? Listen to me. Though repentance may be required in a self-inflicted trial... God's promise to work for our good through difficulty is unaffected by its source. Are you tracking with that? Because that's big news, y'all, if you didn't know it. This is a big deal because a bunch of you believe lies like this. Well, I caused this, so God's not going to help me. I've listened to you do that. Don't tell me you don't think that way. I've listened to you go through a process of saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm assessing how this happened. How did I get here? Well, well. Here's decision A, B, and C. That was real dumb, and that's why I'm in situation D. 
And so now I'm on my own. Well, where did you get that? Where, where did you come to that belief? Give me a scripture for that, would you? You don't have one, but I have a scripture for the exact opposite. It's Romans 8, 28. Who says, it says this. We know God calls his <clears throat> all things to work together for the good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And so listen, I know you and I have done some stuff that now means there's consequences. Every single one of us, to varying degrees, have those situations in our life. But in no, it, it, there is no less of a promise from God for him to help you in the midst of those trials than the ones that he allows to come as a gracious gift to you for your growth. So stop thinking, okay, well, if, if this one came from God, if I can't source where this trouble came from, well, maybe that's a trial from God, and so I'll trust him to help me through that. But this one over here that I caused, I got to white knuckle it and do it myself. You're going to get tired, and you're going to fail and give up if you do that, man. Quit doing that. Okay? Stop. That's a lie from the devil. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God will cause all things to work for good, whether you cause the problem or not. Don't you think God knew you were going to mess that up? Yes, he did. Does any of what I'm saying, don't, do not do this. Does any of what I'm saying mean we are lax about sin or because of that promise, we don't do everything we can to live holy and by God's law because it's for our good? Of course not. Just because God's going to be with us through consequences and help us through trials, even if we cause them, doesn't mean we go out and try to make trials. Okay? Because those consequences are still real. It does still slow us down. And though there is redemption through it, and though there is growth through it, and though there is perseverance by God's grace through it, it it'd be better if we reduce the self-inflicted trials, okay? So let's stop disobeying God, uh, and let's stop being knuckleheads every place it's possible. Uh, but also, if you're in the midst of a consequence right now, and you've been believing the lie from the devil that you're on your own in this thing because you started it, that's a lie from hell. Cast it to the ground and believe God's word. May we be a people who can say with joy, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we be a people who embrace the truth that to live for Christ is to live for the good and joy of others. And may we be a people unified by the gospel and able to rejoice together through trials for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you so much for chapter one of the book of Philippians. Thank you, God, for what you've done in us. Uh, so far. Thank you for the truth that you've revealed. Thank you, God, for uh, just the, the depth here. I thank you, God, for the beautiful truth that even though we've dug and we've worked hard in these scriptures and we have mined uh, for truth and treasure in them, I thank you, God, we have but scratched the surface uh, of what can be found here. And so I, I just ask, God, that uh, by your spirit you would stir a hunger in your people to keep digging here, to keep thinking, to keep letting your living word uh, work to the transformation of your people uh, for their good and your glory. I ask God that uh, we would indeed be a people that can say with integrity, for us to live is Christ. If my heart is beating, if my lungs are inhaling and exhaling, God, may all of what I am at the core of my being be about your glory. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it perfect. That doesn't mean I'm not going to misstep and trip from time to time. But God, ultimately, my deepest desire and what I want more than anything is that all of my life would be 
laid out and would be laid down for your glory, would be about your purposes, that I would be about your business. Please, God, help us so we can say that. Lord, may, may we also understand in a healthy way what it means to be able to say to die is gain. God, I ask that all fear uh, of death would be eradicated among us as your people, that we would look forward with a healthy, anxious anticipation to the day when we are able to join you forever in eternity. But God, I ask that at the same time, uh, that, that would not, Satan wouldn't be able to twist that good desire to be with you into an inordinate desire for death. God, I pray against every wicked spirit and deception uh, that would try to push somebody towards the idea that uh, taking their life into their own hands or taking their life, period, is somehow uh, an acceptable answer before God. I ask, Lord, that they would, they would by your spirit, just uh, be driven uh, into the arms of people that love and care about them. I ask God that every single uh, fear that causes them to stay silent about their struggle would be eradicated by the power of your spirit, that they would come forth and that they would share their struggle and allow people to love them and help them. Uh, and I just thank you, Lord, that that, that that really can happen, that you really can get into that situation and make a difference. I thank you, God, for the promises of your word. We cling to them, Lord, as an anchor in a storm. God, it's everything to us that you have said uh, in, in the midst of trial, whether we caused it or, or, or you've allowed it to come as, as a part of growth and, and, and you've granted to us the, the beautiful privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. Uh, whatever the, the way it came, God, we thank, we're thankful for your precious promise to be with us through it uh, and to work all things uh, for our good and for your glory. Lord, we, we cling to that promise. Lord, it is it is of the utmost importance to us, that you have been faithful thus far to that promise and that you're never going to break it. So we trust you and we love you. And we ask God that all that we've learned thus far from this book, uh, Lord, that wouldn't just be head knowledge. We ask God that we wouldn't just have knowledge that puffs up. Lord, we don't want to start thinking we're smarter now and thus uh, somehow more important. But God, we ask that with every bit of knowledge we gain, with every bit of understanding we grasp about your greatness uh, and, and the beauty of your word, Lord, with every bit of understanding, we ask you would add to us the same amount of humility so we would never, ever uh, boast in ourselves. But may we be able to boast with confidence about you and about your people uh, and, and how you work in their lives. God, help us, please, uh, to do all these things well. We love you and we worship you. We treasure you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.